Good afternoon, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. I'm your host, Neil Kiernan. If this is your first time tuning in, please consider checking out my archives of other episodes with interviews with politicians, the few good ones, um, including congressmen, senators, uh, presidential candidates from multiple parties. Um, you'll also find archived interviews with documentary filmmakers, activists, scientists, and uh, basically a whole lot of roundtable discussions on events going all the way back to 2008. Uh, be aware that my personal political views have changed a lot over the years and that I actually, um, while I am a left-leaning, um, I would call myself a left libertarian, um, I still, however, do bring on people who do not necessarily always share my views. Uh, so um, you can also consider uh, obviously following the show on Facebook, following the show on Twitter, I do have a YouTube channel I don't really use as much, uh, but I do put some important information there. And you can support my uh, efforts on Patreon if you so choose. I don't really expect anybody to do that right now, given the pandemic, but um, something to look at for the future. And today, uh, my guest is Kate McGinnis. Um, Kate, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Oh, hold on. <laughs> There we go. Now you can introduce yourself. <laughs> oh, hi. I'm Kate. Yeah. Um, I'm here uh, representing Green Organizers. Um, so basically, we're just a group of people getting together, trying to organize to improve and expand the Green Party. Okay. Um, Kate, uh, before we get into like the majority of the, the meat of this conversation, the first question that I always ask um, all of my guests is, what was the precipice moment for you? What was the moment that made you decide to go from just being perhaps an observer of politics to being someone who decided, no, it, it's time, I need to get involved? Yeah, so I I, I think this was more of a you know, a gradual process for me. Um, you know, in 2016, I was interested in Bernie Sanders. I voted for him in the primary. Um, I I wasn't able to actually vote in the general because I lived in a different state and um, my absentee ballot didn't come in in time. But um, I would have voted for Hillary Clinton. Um, you know, and then I kind of, you know, intermittently checked in and out um, after the results of 2016 because I was like, ugh. Who wants to watch this, you know? Um, but, you know, seeing the the conversation change around programs like Medicare for All, um, the Green New Deal kind of inspired me to get more involved. Um, and then in recent weeks, um, since Bernie Sanders actually dropped out, um, and, you know, there was a lot of issues around, you know, the legit legitimacy of the primaries and whether or not, you know, there was, in, you know, influenced by the DNC, which I think it was, um, kind sure. of galvanized my, my, I don't know, my thinking that the Democratic Party isn't a fair representation of most voters. Um, it isn't a fair representation of me. And I think the fact that there are only the two choices between the Democratic Party, which is like Republican light, versus the Republican Party is kind of crap. And I realized a lot of people think the same way. 
So instead of complaining about it, um, a group of people and I decided to get together and start organizing um, to build the party up from the ground up and get people in contact with their local and their state level um, in the Green Party so that people can, you know, vote their conscience without being sold the myth that a third party isn't ever going to be viable because that's not true. Well, I would definitely concur with that, and that's one of the reasons why I've hosted a third-party candidate series on my show. Um, And to put up the disclaimer, you will see that there are a lot of people that I did host who I don't even necessarily agree with on many topics. But as I've said to people before, and I generally do get a positive mention on this possibility, was that um, if you were a left-leaning person and you have a friend who is right-leaning, would you rather see them vote? for a libertarian over a Republican? Like, you know, the example I usually give was like in 2016, you know, would you have rather your friend voted for say Gary Johnson or Donald Trump? Almost all of them emphatically say they would, of course, would prefer that their right-leaning friends voted for Gary Johnson. And in the same token, I have a lot of right-leaning friends. And I asked them, I said, would you rather, you know, in 2016 that your left-leaning friends voted for Hillary Clinton or Jill Stein? And all of them had said, well, Mm -hmm. of course, we'd rather they voted for Jill Stein. And that's why I've actually seen the third parties in general actually do a fairly good job of working together. When I ran for Congress, Mm -hmm. um, I was actually a libertarian at that time, although I was a Mike Gravel libertarian. So (laughs) I was a kind of a left-leaning libertarian, obviously. Um, But, Mm -hmm. you know, the Green Party candidates were very nice to me and they actually they helped me. They told me where uh, there were voter forums and debates I could participate mm-hmm. in, and they gave me advice. And then it was actually, her name was Candace Cavani, um, was the yeah. uh, other candidate for the Green Party at that time, voting when I was voting, I'm sorry, rather running for Congress. And she explained to me that that's just how the Libertarians and the Greens do things in Michigan. Um, and you've also seen this kind of cooperation when it comes to things like recounts, ballot access, you know, and so as a result, I do think that this is an important allegiance that we should continue. And that, in my opinion, should extend to the other third parties as well. Uh, because at yeah. the end of the day, the duopoly, you know, they understand one thing. They definitely don't want us around. So we yeah. have to also be unified in that way. And, you know, as a result, that's why I've told people, you know, consistently over the years, you know, it's like, you know, at the end of the day, all of these people are outside the box thinkers. You know, I mean, even some of the libertarians I've talked to were even open to the idea of working, you know, with the Socialist Party or its various incarnations, Mm -hmm. if needed, to be able to help with these issues. And that's a diametrically opposed pair of ideologies, but they still understood Mm -hmm. the need for breaking this duopoly. So, yeah, now, I mean, um, let's take a go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that all sides, no matter what third party you're in, I think you can recognize that there is some massive um, systemic uh, failures of the system, no matter what party you're talking about. And also the fact that, you know, we're dealing with two corrupt entities. There might be good actors within those corrupt entities, but the fact that the system is set up in such a way to where, you know, popular ideas are pushed down as a threat to the party, as opposed to being embraced, you know, that's where we run into problems. And I, you know, Working together on things like ballot access, um, things like getting uh, ranked choice voting, you know, made legal in states. I think, you know, you don't have to sacrifice any ideological viewpoints to work together on those points. 
No, I would agree, um, especially since in a lot of ways um, they have a lot in common, too. I mean, so, for example, mm-hmm. both the Green Party and the Libertarian Party are anti-war. Um, and that, that's a mm-hmm. really important issue that I think that should unify all people, regardless of their yeah. activist backgrounds. I think we can agree on that. I've never heard of any pro-war activists, at least none that were sane. So, um, uh, you know, there are things are that... Senate, so. Well, right. And so there are things that we can work together on. And, and that's why I think that, you know, moving forward, we should definitely be looking at that. So um, mm-hmm. I did write a blog when I decided to make the decision to uh, join the Green Party. And um, this was written in April 14th. I'd like to take a moment mm-hmm. and read from it and, you know, basically have some commentary with you about it. Would you be open to that? Yeah, that sounds fine. Okay. So you guys, if you like, who are listening, you can follow along or just read it later if you like. The link is provided in the description of the broadcast. But the blog is entitled, Progressives, It's Time to Stop the Cycle of Abuse. And essentially the header picture at the top is literally, you know, more more or less a photo that's kind of depicting in a domestic violence circumstances with the offender labeled DNC and the victim labeled Progressive. Um, And I know that that's a very powerful statement to make, but I did it for a very real reason. And I hope that uh, once you listen to what I wrote here, that it will make more sense. Yes, Mm -hmm. I did choose a picture depicting an abusive relationship to represent the relationship between the progressive movement and the Democratic Party. And no, I by no means use this image to make a parody of the very real issue that domestic violence is. But I realized some time ago that this is the perfect analogy for the relationship the progressive movement has with the Democratic Party. And just like so many very real abusive marriages, this one also needs to end. The history of the Democratic Party is one that would often make you wonder how we even got to the situation we are in. The Democratic Party used to be a party of small government and the party that was pro-slavery. The Democratic President Andrew Jackson ordered the Trail of Tears, a forced relocation of Native Americans in the name of Manifest Destiny. The Republicans of that time period, ironically, were the advocates for bigger government and opposed slavery. Sometime after the Civil War, when a lot of new Western states were added to the Union, there was kind of a dramatic swap of positions. And long story short, the Democratic Party changed its platform drastically to try and get the votes of the poor farmers of the West. In my analogy, this could be the young woman who came from a poor family who was courted by a wealthy man who promised to give her happiness and lift her out of poverty. There are a few other historical points to make. One would be that a lot of socialist ideas also came to the Democratic Party in an effort to try to coax votes from the various incarnations of the Socialist Party throughout our history. Over the course of the history of the United States, there have been many political parties that no longer are talked about that represented the workers, the poor, etc. And a similar marriage happened with similar unfortunate results. The Progressive Party of 1912. Formed by Theodore Roosevelt, the Progressive Party at its 1912 convention formulated a platform that exemplified the following. This is a quote. To destroy this invisible government, to dissolve the unholy alliance between corrupt business and corrupt politics is the first task of the statesmanship of the day. It was a great, it was, I'm sorry, it was a party that formed specifically to oppose the power of big business and the wealthy and to challenge the dominion that the wealthy had seized over both the Democratic and Republican Party alike some key points of its platform were that there should be strict limitations on campaign contributions and that such contributions should be disclosed. Lobbyists should be registered. The congressional committee meetings should be recorded and minutes should be published publicly. In areas of social policy that platform called for 
establishing a national health service. This is essentially the equivalent of Medicare for all of that time. A social insurance to provide for the disabled, elderly, and unemployed. To limit the power of judges to bust labor strikes. A minimum wage, wage law for women. The eight-hour workday. Relief for farmers. Workers' compensation for injuries sustained while working. The inheritance tax. Now, it's important to note when I go over this part of the blog is that a lot of these things are things that we more or less just kind of take for granted now, but this is pre-New Deal. This is 1912, and all of these ideas were considered, yeah. considered extremely radical at that time. Um, now, the political reforms that were called for were women's rights, or more specifically, women's suffrage. Jane Addams was a prominent feminist of the time and is credited as being one of the founders of the party. Direct democracy initiatives to allow citizens to... Recall corrupt officials via recall, I'm sorry, via recall elections. Now, you see this process still play out on the state level all the time. You can recall a governor, um, for example, you can, but they wanted to be able to essentially be able to get together signatures and actively work to recall any politician if they get out of line. And I've seen where, you know, where you have countries where this is possible, the politics change drastically because people are aware of the fact that they could be eliminated. In our current system of representative government, we have a situation where somebody can get elected and their um, approval ratings can drop below 30%. Think like George Bush Jr., yeah. for example, and you just have to put up with them for four years and there's nothing you can do about it. And that's ridiculous. So um, yeah. now, citizens' referendums to allow citizens to decide on a law by popular vote. So we, this is another one that you see on the state level, and it's not always perfect, but they do end up being something that can, in a lot of cases, bring a lot of positive change, especially when it comes to something like the legislature. So, for example, there are a lot of state ballot initiatives right now that are eliminating gerrymandering. Do you think that our elected officials really were cool. ever going to be on board with that? Right, exactly. They just passed oh, no. it in Michigan. There's going to be yeah. uh, private groups. Now, I don't want to say private as in not privatized, but as in... Um, basically groups that are nonpartisan. Uh, the one in Michigan calls mm -hmm. for four Republicans, four Democrats, and four independents to draw all the districts, as opposed to people getting elected to these obscure positions that set the districts. People are not even aware of how the system works. Mm -hmm. A good film about oh, that yeah. would be uh, Slaying the Dragon. If you haven't seen it yet, you really should, because gerrymandering makes election and voter fraud unnecessary, and they could just control mm -hmm. everything by controlling the district. Anyway... Mm -hmm. So citizens' initiatives um, would also allow us to do things like um, cancel wars. Uh, in fact, in Switzerland, mm -hmm. if you want to take the Swiss military to war, a referendum is required. There is no one person other than in immediate defense situations who can just make the unilateral decision to commit the Swiss military to war. Referendum is yeah. required. And if the war becomes unpopular, as the war in Iraq did or the war in Vietnam did, you simply get together your signatures, put together a ballot initiative, and then you vote to end it. And then they have to, you know, the, these six, these systems of direct democracy were extremely popular with my uh, political mentor, Senator Mike Gravel. And he just felt mm -hmm. that that was really what we needed to do to move forward because you, you know, you have to get to the point where there's a check and balance, one final check and balance on our elected officials. So, mm -hmm. um, this was also going to include the ability for citizens to even overrule court rulings on laws by popular vote. Um, the Progressive Party over the years managed to fill seats in Congress, and a governor switched from Republican to Progressive Party to win his election. Years later, many progressives mm -hmm. switched to the Republican Party, 
where not unlike progressives are treated now, never managed to get nominated by the party leadership for major office. This eventually led to the progressive movement finding its way to the New Deal Democratic Party led by FDR in the 1930s. So that's how we got here. Essentially, that's that's uh, more or less the time when the marriage was solidified between the progressives and the Democrats, because leading up to that, mm-hmm. the Democrats were actually not progressive at all. Um, over yeah. the years, the progressives fought for issues such as an end to child labor, an end to American imperialism in Latin America, more laws to protect labor unions, and et cetera. In 1948, a new incarnation of the party fought for desegregation, nationalized health care, and an expansion of the welfare systems. By the way, the party color at that time was green. Now, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, it's little things you learn when you do research. So <laughs> the marriage turned sour. Fast forward to 1980. President Jimmy Carter, who many would consider a progressive, loses the election to Ronald Reagan in a crushing defeat. It would be fair to point out that Carter had been challenged to a primary before his election by Ted Kennedy. There was already concern in the more elitist of the Democratic Party that Carter was not an effective leader. Ironically, what made Carter ineffective was his inability to play the corrupt games of Washington. He held a lot of progressive views, including supporting nationalized health care. He supported gay marriage before it was cool and long before Hillary Clinton's face famous flip-flopping on the issue, and long before Joe Biden's you know, views on the issue too, I might add, or Barack Obama. Jimmy Carter has come to be someone that the more I learn about him, the more I like him, which might also be why the DNC didn't like him at all. After the loss to Reagan, the DNC started considering that it was time for the party to turn in the direction of being Republican light, and that more and more progressive ideas were considered to be liabilities. And that brings me to the situation we seem to have seen play out over and over again in recent elections. The DNC continues to push for more, I'm sorry, rather continues to push for and nominate candidates that are labeled centrists. These candidates also Mm -hmm. tend to lose. These candidates typically pander to the progressive and union labor element enough to just to get us on board. Then as things draw closer Mm -hmm. to the convention, the situation is manipulated to ensure that the progressive voices get less and less time to be heard. In 2008, the more progressive candidates like Mike Gravel or Dennis Kucinich were marginalized by the media and the party, kicked out of the debates as fast as the party could get it done. I've made comments on previous broadcasts about the fact that people who are just now getting involved in politics don't realize how good they have it because a candidate like Bernie Sanders would not have been given any airtime. And when you talk about the rallies, you know, Ron Paul in 2008 had enormous rallies with thousands of people. The media would just pretend they didn't exist. Like, so there'd be these enormous rallies going on. You wouldn't even know. And they really pushed a narrative that he was some fringe candidate that nobody cared for. So things have changed and we need to capitalize on that when we have an opportunity Let me get through this. Barack Obama pretended to be a progressive and just like an abusive boyfriend lied to us to get us to stay with him. Then after, then after he got us quote unquote in bed, the next morning we woke to find him absent as he had better things to do with his actual friends, corporations that the DNC actually values core of the tensions between Bernie Sanders and Barack Obama that led to talks of a primary. In 2016, we watched as they again tried to placate us until it was clear we were not falling in line, finally culminating in a situation where we are bullied, browbeaten, and threatened to obey, because after all, we have nowhere else to go. Just like an abusive husband standing over us daring us to leave, where are we going to go? I recall watching a documentary about Ralph Nader, wherein a former DNC insider said those exact words and explained that that is what he was told about progressives, to ignore us. After all, we have nowhere else to go. He also stressed that as long as the DNC didn't believe we would ever take our votes away from them, 
They would continue to just keep doing that. Bill Clinton said if progressives didn't want to live under Republican rule, that they would have to vote him in, as we have nowhere else to go. Bill Maher, in one of his many rants berating us and ridiculing us for not jumping on the Hillary Clinton bandwagon, said the same thing. Ignore progressives, because they have nowhere else to go. They count on our vote, because just like that abusive husband, they feel they hold all the cards. The house and the car are in their name. They know they will get custody of the kids. So that brings me back to the analogy I used at the start of this article. The progressives got married to the Democratic Party after promises that we would be respected and that our views would be shared and our husband by our husband, quote unquote. But over the years, those promises have not been kept. The covenant of this marriage has been violated and as a result should be annulled. Every election cycle, like an abused wife, we are insulted, intimidated and ridiculed. If we dare to speak up for ourselves in any way, we are told we are the ones that are being cruel. Bernie brothers froze. We are pushed and shoved, ignored and berated. Then as the primary draws to a close, we are again on the floor bleeding as the DNC takes out its rage at its own inadequacies on us. We are threatened to be sent back to our equally abusive father, Trump or whatever Republican, if we don't fall in line and obey. And we do because like many abused wives, we do have no worlds to go. And we have to protect our children, the poor, who sometimes we can get, you know, sometimes we can get our abusive husband help take care of. After we are brutally beaten down during the primary and we are thinking maybe, just maybe, we should leave our husband for that nice man, nice man down the street who loves our ideas and tells us we are beautiful, third parties, our husband shows up with flowers and candy and begs us to forgive him. He promises it will be different this time and please not to leave. Until the next election cycle, when it all begins again. We are blamed for any failings in our husband's life, even after we obeyed and did what he asked of us. It still and will always will be our fault. The nice man down the street just watches, shaking his head in sadness. He can't understand why we keep doing this to ourselves, and neither can we. Progressives, it's time to break this cycle. Yes, it will be hard. Maybe the nice man down the street doesn't have as much money or power as our soon-to-be ex-husband. But if we work together with him, we can build something that is right for us. It will take a long time and it will be hard, but it will be right. And we won't be picking ourselves up off the floor bruised and battered. And we will face any adversity together, supporting one another rather than being told our ideas that are close to our hearts are foolish dreams. The nice man down the street lives in a greenhouse. Reference to the Green Party. So obviously, you know, now I've kind of just dropped a lot into this, but I wanted to get that over. So what are your thoughts? I mean, yeah, I've heard that analogy a lot. Um, I don't, I don't think there's anything inaccurate about that statement. I would say that, you know, the only way that we're going to get out of this situation is that if people, you know, stop complaining and just do the work, you know, people always ask, you know, why, you know, how is this ever going to be viable? How is this party ever going to work? How are we going to do it without say ranked choice voting? And, and my point is, is that, you know, the Green, the Green Party, and I don't know specifically about other third parties, is always fighting for those fairer initiatives um, for, you know, ranked choice voting, hand, uh, paper, handmark ballots, um, all that kind of stuff. So my point is, why not do it simultaneously? Why not move over to a third party, help it grow, you know, a party that actually embraces these ideas, um, stop complaining about how the Democrats treat us and just, you know, move on. Obviously, it's unfair. They're not going to get any fairer. You know, there is a debate between, you know, whether the inside-outside strategy makes any sense. 
in my perspective, the inside-outside strategy is failing because there is no outside right now, you know, not, not in, in large enough numbers. Um, I think that could change. I think people need to be brave um, and decide to do something else. Um, I, I think sitting around and hoping and wishing for the Democrats to pay attention isn't going to work. Um, we need to, you know, there's several things we can do. Obviously, fight for things like ranked choice voting. Um, the Green Party spends a lot of time and energy on that kind of thing. Um, also, things like direct action. You know, the Democrats don't like to promote things like, you know, protests. The idea of standing outside of your representative's house with a sign saying, you know, vote for X proposal or we'll vote you out. Um, I think it's a good choice. And I think if we have the organizing structure within the Green Party, um, and it doesn't even have to be official, but if there's a, a, a large um, organized effort to say, hey, we're an electoral body, we are also a direct action body, which they are. They participate in lots of community events, uh, lots of protests, lots of activists within the party, then I think we will succeed. And one of the benefits of moving over to the Green Party is that the Democrats do move left in order to retain those votes. So whether or not you think that the party will be successful electorally, it will have an effect on, you know, what the party platform is eventually, but not if we only have less than 5% of the vote. No, I would definitely agree with that. And I think that that's why I believe that we should definitely approach this perspective. Of course, we would like to win, you know, but it's definitely, you know, something to consider that even just getting 5% of the vote would drastically change everything, um, particularly mm-hmm. for the candidates who haven't been able to hold any other offices. You know, it helps with ballot access. It's federal matching funding. And then if we can get that mm-hmm. 15%, like Ross Perot did, we could actually get on the debate stage. Um, and they yeah. did honor that for Ross Perot. Um, and yes, there is still a lot of other things we need to concern ourselves with. Like, for example, the Electoral College will make it difficult. However, you know, mm-hmm. as I pointed out, when I was reading to you that progressive platform from 1912, those changes eventually happened. You know, um, yeah. that, that's basically uh, sent to, um, you know, something to seriously consider is that sometimes change is incremental. You know, I had the Socialist Party candidate uh, from 2008, Brian Moore, on my broadcast, um, and he pointed out that, you know, he actually asked me the question, you know, this is in 2008 when Barack Obama was running. He's like, have you noticed how everybody keeps calling Barack Obama a socialist? And I said, well, yeah, why do you feel that they do that? And he said, well, the reason why is because the Democratic Party adopted a lot of Socialist Party ideas in order to get the, the workers and the unions on their side. And as a result, the Socialist Party had a huge impact on politics, even though they don't really get a lot of people elected, because if they don't continue to maintain those views, they will continue to lose votes to the third parties. So even if we don't immediately win any elections, sometimes politics isn't about that. Sometimes it's also about spreading ideas. I brought this up in my Mm -hmm. show for uh, Bernie Yang and Tulsi supporters was that sometimes Mm -hmm. you you can't just get so fixated on the election itself. And I've seen a lot of voters become disenfranchised and frustrated because they're so concerned that they didn't win an election. And I pointed out that 
The electoral process when it comes to politics is actually just a battle in a war. Like we are in a long standing campaign and sometimes we may not win that particular battle, but we set a precedent, you know, so take for example, rather we set a precedent for policy. We get ideas into the ears of the people, you know, so take for example, go ahead. Yeah. That's one of the, one of the uh, arguments I hear for, you know, say a Bernie Sanders is, you know, well, we changed the ideological, you know, we, we won the ideological war. And, you know, things like, say something as basic as Medicare for all. I say basic because it should be basic policy. It makes no sense that we haven't adopted it yet. The only reason is money to influence. Um, the, you know, nobody would be talking about it. And I know that other countries have it. And I know the idea has been floating around there. And it's not like he came up with Medicare for all. He didn't come up with the Green New Deal. But, you know, having a speaker get on a debate stage and talk about these ideas has woken people up. You know, the amount of support that these ideas have is incredible. And, you know, you have people, I'm, I'm 22, you have people who are younger, who are coming into politics, who are thinking, you know, the world sucks right now. And I agree, the world does suck. You know, when will we get our chance? You know, all these older folks go out and vote. Um, they are primarily you know, centrist or conservative, how do we, you know, have our voices heard? And I think the most effective way to do that is voting third party. You know, voting for Bernie Sanders, wonderful. I think, you know, I think that was a good move. A lot of people within the Green Party itself voted in to, um, voted in the Democratic primary, um, yeah, I, I think that there are a lot of people within the Green Party, and I don't think this is true. This is, um, this is what some people do, is they, they vote in Democratic primaries, so they have a say in, you know, who the Democratic candidate will be, but then they also run their own, you know, candidate in the general election. And I think that, you know, switching back and forth, some people, you know, think it's less powerful, some people don't. I think that's a good you know, middle point for those who are uncomfortable with the entire idea of, you know, hey, I'm going to leave the Democratic Party forever. I'm never, ever, ever going back. Um, there, you know, we have to be more nimble in our strategy if we want to win. You know, centrists do the same thing every time, and they always win because the, six, the system is rigged against us. But I feel like as progressives, we have to be paying attention all the time. We have to be participating in everything constantly and we have to come out in numbers and I think that's where the organizing comes in and that's a big reason why you know a group of us got together and decided you know the Green Party is pretty decentralized and that's a good thing you know it helps with local politics but also I feel like we need a centralized organizing body in order to help each other out across state lines um actually I have a question that just came in on this thread do you want me to read it by all means yeah. And um, um, real quickly, call, I do see that you're mm-hmm. there. Um, please don't hang yeah. up. I, I will be bringing you on if you're interested in coming on. Um, just, just be patient. I do see you, and I will be bringing you on, okay? Now, go ahead, Kate. Yeah. Um, my question relates to the two hurdles I see. People looking for one person to solve or blame all, and, they just, and the decentralized 
and the decentralization of the Green Party. What way can we overcome these related hurdles in people's minds? Okay, yeah, so I think the idea of, hey, you can't just rely on, you know, say, ex-presidential candidate to make us a viable party, totally valid. You know, we can't rise to, to prominence with any candidate, I think, you know, Say, say Howie Hawkins is the nominee, right? The idea isn't that Howie Hawkins is so important that he should get elected. No, it's that the policies are a big deal. And, you know, a lot of, of Bernie Sanders supporters said, no, it's not, it's not a cult of personality. It's about the policies. And, you know, I think that's a valid point. Even somebody like uh, Jesse Ventura, which, um, you know, he's not officially running yet. Um, I think he might. We don't know. Um, The benefit of having somebody like a Jesse Ventura is name recognition, but we can't just rely on that. You know, Um, if there is no substantive force of, of volunteers, organizers, of coordinated movement, um, I don't think we'll ever have success as a party. Um, Any thoughts? Well, um, when it comes to the issue of candidates, I think that we need to have a bit of a combination of both. Um, I do think that, uh, and I've seen this before because I've been involved in third-party politics, and I remember, for example, the treatment that Senator Gravel got when he joined the Libertarian Party, that there were a lot of people who had been in the party for a very long time and kind of felt that it was their turn, you know, um, Mm -hmm. and the result of that can be a situation where people basically get very comfortable in being big fish in the little pond. And then they don't realize that, you know, they don't look at the future of what's going to happen with all of their efforts for them. In many cases, it almost seems like the, their, uh, their policy, I'm sorry, their process for them ends at the nomination. They feel that they've done their part. If they get a candidate nominated, no matter how Mm -hmm. little of a chance that candidate has to get elected, now, and I agree that it's not just about winning elections, absolutely, but we do have to be able to figure out a balance. So that's why I say I don't think that every um, celebrity who's going to run for a party is really the best choice. Like, for example, Roseanne Barr didn't really motivate me to look more heavily at Greens. You know, um, if anything, I would say yeah. Gary Johnson would have given me more motivation to look at the libertarians at that time. And I wasn't even a libertarian at that time. Um, you know, mm-hmm. Jill Stein was a very solid candidate. I thought she was great, but I also know that, you know, that people do, we have to remember, we're also, we have to basically look at this, not just from the perspective of what works for third party thinkers. We need to also look at it from the perspective of trying to get people from outside of that little pond. And sometimes yeah. that's going to mean, well, what position have you held? You know, and I know that that's not the end all be all. I mean, when I was in the Libertarian Party, we had to deal with the crap that they basically wanted to get this Bob Gar- Bob Barr guy the nomination. And he had a lot of money and a lot of support. He was also a neoconservative, voted for the Iraq war, was against, you know, you know, was against gay marriage and all kinds of nonsense, you know. And so I've seen the dark side of that, too. It's a question of how many compromises are we talking about? And one of the things that I think that's important to understand about the electorate right now is that people really want somebody, I'm just going to be blunt about it, it's the give a shit factor. You know, so for example, yeah. I don't agree with Ron Paul on a great many things, but I do believe that man gives a shit. You know, Congressman yeah. Kucinich gives a shit. Mike Gravel gives a shit. Okay. These people all really care. You may not agree with them about everything, but they care. And that's what voters are looking for right now. 
you know, but they also are going to want to see some kind of legitimacy. So if a candidate who at most has been elected to like a board of trustees or a, you know, or, you know, the uh, representative on some university or something, these are all good things. And I don't want to make anybody think that I'm poo-pooing on that. But we have to be realistic about what the outside world thinks about that. And the, the truth of the matter is, if you've been elected to, say, a congressional office like Cynthia McKinney, that lends some credibility. If you were a governor, if you were a mayor, these things lend some credibility. You know, what I would like to eventually yeah. see, and this is actually important, and I've said the same thing to the libertarians, is that perhaps we should eventually consider, rather than spending all of our resources on a presidential election, why don't we do some research Find out where we are strongest, you know, find what congressional district we are strongest in, you know, if possible, move a lot of our people there, like as in literally relocate, um, you know, and strategize to get at least one, you know, G in parentheses or L in parentheses or whatever in parentheses on C-SPAN debating in Congress. Then yeah, we take I mean, that, that was, candidate that and we run them for president. You know, yeah, one of our I mean, own that's self-made the argument for yeah, that's that's the argument for running a lot of local elections with a candidate. Um, and you know, that's you know, I don't think it should just be the presidency. I don't think it should just be just a push to the Senate, for example. Although Lisa Savage from Maine is ra- uh, running in a ranked choice voting race, um, check her out. She's pretty cool, um, and she has a solid chance of winning this thing because people get to vote their conscience. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think, I think it's, it's really, you know, it's, we can always debate back and forth whether or not a presidential candidate is best for the party. But I think, you know, I think we're distracting ourselves from the larger issue at hand when we talk about, you know, and, and we have people on both sides of this argument between say a Jesse Ventura, Dario Hunter, uh, Howie Hawkins, you know, we have people on all sides in this group. It's not, we're not just about one candidate, but I think about promoting our people at, you know, town hall level, you know, at, you know, what are you going to do for your city? Are you going to run for city council? You should, there might be an open seat. You might even be running in an uncontested race or in a race, just one opponent. Um, Those are the kind of races where, you know, they're less likely to spend a bunch of money to fight you out. Um, so I think it's, um, I think it's important that we don't distract ourselves by just focusing on on presidential elections. It's a great way to get our name out there. It's a great way to work. I think every time we run, we should run to win. Um, but yeah, I think, I think you had a a caller on the line. I do. Um, and there was one point that I've been holding back from before that I just want to spit out before I forget, but it has to do with the benefit of the elections being a path to get your ideas into the consciousness. And the, the two observations that I wanted to share about that topic was that one, um, if you consider 2016, uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, had all these ideas that people had just identified as that's insane. You know, we're never going to do that. And then I remember in 2020 at the very first debate, literally laughing out loud because everybody on the stage sounded a hell of a lot more like 2016 Bernie Sanders than they did the year before. Were they legitimate Mm -hmm. on it? Were they genuine? Probably not. 
But things go from just being part of the dialogue and the narrative to becoming the positions of those people. Another excellent example would mm-hmm. be Ron Paul was never going to win the Republican nomination. They, they fought him really hard, but he did bring a great deal of attention to the Patriot Act and the violations of our civil liberties. He brought a lot of attention to the difficulties about like, you know, essentially what role the Federal Reserve has in causing problems for us. He brought a lot of attention to the Military Commissions Act and a lot of very unconstitutional things that were being done in the name of making us safer that were harming our civil rights. You know, um, and then you come to an even more recent example, and I think this one is even more dramatic, is Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang ran for president, um, and he didn't really feel that he necessarily had any you know, possibility of winning. He was just an entrepreneur. He didn't hold any previous positions. But now everybody's talking about universal basic income, and nobody was talking yeah. about it before. I mean, some people were, but it was kind of a fringe idea. And now everybody's talking about universal income, especially um, considering you know, the current pandemic situation. You know, ironically, a situation that absolutely proved a lot of you know, uh, Andrew Yang's opinions as far as to what should be done. And I, by the way, guys, even if you, you know, have no interest in supporting Andrew Yang, I did read his book. And he has thought this out very in-depth. So I encourage you to investigate it because, honestly, I, I think he's won me over that this is a good approach. You know, how we go about it, you know, there are questions about that. And I've heard Jesse Ventura say the same thing, is that he's open to the possibility. He just wants to make sure that it can be paid for. Um, and he has ideas about, like, how we can do that. His biggest one was cutting military spending. You know, but we'll get into that later. This this particular broadcast isn't going to be as much about any specific candidates. This is a Green Party broadcast in general. Um, now, there is a question about a candidate in the chat room, and I will be getting to that eventually because I do want people to be encouraged to and participate. We have had a caller waiting on the line. Um, so, caller, um, I'm going to go ahead and enable your microphone. Just um, basically, you know, it doesn't have to be just a question. If there are some comments you want to make about what we're saying is fine. Just please be respectful. And that's caller at the 301 area code. You're on the air. Oh, this is also me, Eric Lowry? That was, Well, if you're, if you're in the 301 area code, sir. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. I, yeah, that, that's me, man. That, that's me, Eric Lowry here. And, Welcome um, to V Radio. I'm super. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. You know, I'm very excited um, about what uh, the Green Party is doing. Um, you know, I mean, I, I definitely um, got delusioned. You know, I'm, I'm 48, and um, the first time I ever voted was in 2008 in Chillicothe, Ohio, for Barack Obama. He came to our city. And uh, he had he had uh, redneck truckers dancing on their uh, on their flatbeds, saying Obama, Obama. Like I mean, I mean he had a movement, you know. And and I was like, wow, man. Like you know, this is real. This is gonna be real hope and change. First time I ever voted at 36 years of age. And um, unfortunately, um, you know, he didn't. Uh, he he broke all his promises pretty much. You know, he didn't close Guantanamo. I mean, he didn't do nothing, man. I mean, you know, he, he didn't do nothing. And West Baltimore is, is in shambles. Um, we have only 620,000 residents, and we have the most murders, not per capita, the most murders in America, and we're 63% black. And it's just a total disaster. It's just a total disaster. And this pandemic has opened up, has exposed all our deepest wounds. I mean, you're talking about we don't just have food insecurity. Okay, kids were eating dinner, Doritos for dinner on food stamps before this started, okay, okay, in Hungary. 
so this is this has just been catastrophic and and of course the most vulnerable among us are the ones that are going to perish at alarming rates even if they do recover they're going to have lifelong sicknesses and 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 drain our and drain our medicaid and medicare systems you know what i'm saying and and not and have a poor quality of life you know we have dirty air dirty water I mean, I talk to the drug dealers all the time. Trust me, they have protected me at times, you know what I'm saying, from certain things. I'm not going there, but it's, like, but it, it's bad. It's just really bad. And, and we, we, you know, I, I really want to make a change in Baltimore City. And, you know, and I'm a man of the people. I don't, you know, a lot of these other candidates have P.O. boxes out in the suburbs, places. Mm-hmm. I actually live in the hood. I live right, you know, in West Baltimore and Coppin Heights and stuff, you know, right there, right by Coppin State University. And I just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to make a difference for, you know, for, for Baltimore and also, and also simultaneously elevate the Green Party. I'm saying I'm excited about that. You know, I, it's good that you've, you've actually kind of grasped that Barack Obama did not really keep his promises because a lot of people are still enamored with that uh, heroic image of who he was. And I would say that, unfortunately, that's also lending a lot of credence to Joe Biden. Um, and I encountered that when I was trying to help Bernie Sanders in Michigan was that so many people were just like, no, no, no. Joe Biden was Barack Obama's VP. I, you know, I got to go ahead and go along with this guy. Um, and I don't think that they've really realized it. And there are people who like tried to attack Bernie Sanders for suggesting that perhaps we should primary Barack Obama, but he didn't do it for no reason. Barack Obama campaigned as a progressive minded person and then just totally, you know, sold out as soon as we got to the, you know, to, you know, past all of that. You know, that's why I use the analogy of it's the guy that sweet talks you and gets you in bed. And then the next morning he's gone. And that's Barack Obama. Um, You know, Kate, did you want to take a moment and respond to anything he said? Yeah, I think um, there's this interesting idea that um, Joe Biden, like, like voting for for him over, say, a third party is inherently racist Um, and you know, I, I personally don't believe that that is even a legitimate, you know, stance to have. You know, I mean, if you're talking about, you know, who more black people voted for, yes, more black people voted for Joe Biden, but also more Latino voters voted for um, Bernie Sanders. I mean, they're different groups. I understand that with different, you know, identities. I'm not trying to dis- uh, dismiss that. But I also think it's really interesting that the – you know, that the cover for the candidate has become about race when Joe Biden is yet another, you know, 75-year-old white man. Do you have any response to that, Eric? Um, look, man, you know, to me it's like Joe Biden, okay, he peaked in the 80s. We know, and that's what, mm-hmm. that's what I was trying to say earlier. People do not understand the collateral damage. Okay, when he passed the crime bill, Okay, he sent lots of black men to jail for a long time, and it destroyed the black family. People don't understand the trauma that these kids deal with being raised by single mothers on welfare. There could be a revolving door of men. Let me tell you a horror story. I have real estate in Baltimore. Okay, a tenant, a tenant. This is the thing that, this is the depth of insight, and I'm taking you behind the curtain. I had a tenant who, his son, they had to move in a guy, right? Right, and and uncle, his uncle, out of jail. He had nowhere to go. And these are the problems that we have in the black community is because they don't have these got people coming out of jail. They don't. They can't make a soft landing, and they don't have resources to help them 
um, assimilate back into society so recidivism don't happen, right? So, look, what happened was, I'm going to be graphic, okay? This uncle went in there, sucked his two-year-old nephew's dick, and gave him herpes, okay? And, and this, is, this is the type of thing we have to deal with. Like, you know, it's like we don't have we, – in poverty, there's so much ancillary negative effects. I can go on for days. I'm just saying this, you know, we don't have... Feel free to you know, go on. I just mean, don't like, do like, it quite as graphically. <laughs> okay. <laughs> go okay. ahead. Look, 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 look. I, I apologize, right? Look, look, look. Sure. I, I, you know, my brother in, is, a, is a millionaire, right, down in, a pop, um, in, in, in Florida, right, in Sanford, Florida with his wife. You know, his daughter, his children get to raise, be raised well-adjusted. They don't go to school hungry. All they've seen was loving parents all their lives. You know, so when she goes to Master's Academy, the private school for $1,000 a month, she's ready to learn. These kids come into school. Their minds are twisted. They're angry. Their, their, parents are, their parents could be indifferent. They don't know how to parent. You know, they're young. They're immature. They're foolish. So it's like I'm just saying that there's so much. There's so much pain and there's so much dysfunctionality that, you know, our teachers, unfortunately, in Baltimore City got to be youth counselors. They got to be, they got to be de facto parents, you know, and that's why after five years, they say, you know what, man, the hell with this, man. I'm going to go to the private sector, you know what I'm saying, I, I, can find a much, I can find something much better than this and more lucrative than this than to deal with this foolishness, you know, no supplies, underfunded, you know, and, and stretched to the max. And so we, we have a crisis. We, we just have, we have an existential crisis. We have no supermarkets, okay, in our neighborhood, okay. Mm -hmm. The corner stores, okay, can't even have, they can't even get their stel you know, shelves stocked right now because the supply chain is so jacked up. So I'm, I'm just saying we have lots of problems. And, you know, I, I'm really just hoping that one day I could get elected because I, I'm I'm I don't, I'm not like fake Elizabeth Warren. I have a real plan. I have a real plan. You know what I'm saying? And 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 I'm gonna attack the the controlled substance economy, the biggest economy in the hood, because there are no jobs in my neighborhood. And these kids are like, okay, I could go to this local ghetto mall and work for ten ten an hour, which is the minimum wage, or I could do open air drug dealing. They okay, and it's right by my house. Okay, they sell drugs on my porch, and they can make three four hundred dollars a day. And so I'm just saying, and and some of them tell me, yo e, you know what? I don't really want to do this, man. You know, and 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 uh, you know, thank you for not lecturing us and browbeating us. But we're just trying to feed our family. And some of these kids, they just yeah. don't know. They don't know any better. But go on. Yeah. And, and can you I, – I don't live in your neighborhood. Can you talk about, you know, do people vote? Do people feel that voting, you know, for Democrats or Republicans, you know, will fundamentally change anything? Um, no, I mean, no, I, I receive a lot of pushback. I've had people say, get the F out of my face. You know, you're just another politician. Because, you see, see it's like people do not understand the power of your vote. And this is why we're so marginalized, because roughly maybe 3% of blacks vote, right? And then on top of that, we don't, we're not politically engaged. We're, we're not, we're not activated in our community because I told I'm telling you gentrification is happening and look they, they when these white people and these kids from Hong Kong and Japan and London and Sweden and Ireland come to Baltimore City okay they're going to demand better 
because they're not going to accept mediocrity. They're not going to accept trash. They're not going to accept failing schools. Okay, they're not going to accept that. But again, we are ignorant as a people, and we don't know any better. And we, you know what I'm saying, we, all we know is dysfunction, and this is just how it's been for four for decades. So, yo, this is how it's supposed to be. And, you know, it, it, it's really sad. What did you say your name was again, mm-hmm. sir? Um, my name is Eric Powery. Eric. Okay, hey, Eric. You know, you're actually really well-spoken, man. You know, and stick to it. Uh, the first question I have for you is, are you registered for the Green Party in your state? I just, I just did, man. I just, I just did, right. man. Well, investigate, you yeah. know, what you have to do to participate in the primary process and make sure you check out all of the candidates. You know, and my advice to you would be, um, when I ran for Congress, especially if you're looking at third party, um, the door-to-door canvassing is a heck of a lot more effective than spending large quantities of money on, you know, uh, uh, flyers and all that. A lot of people get caught up in that, and people just throw them in the trash. You know, so, but if you go door-to-door, to door, like when I was running for president, uh, or not president, I'm sorry, for Congress, I was actually at that time a libertarian, um, and I would like go up to the door, and I'm like, oh, man, this person is a Barack, o- Barack Obama you know, sign on their door. Am I going to have any success? And then I did. In fact, I converted a lot of people to come along and vote for me because in many cases, as soon as you can help them understand that you actually care, it changes everything. In some cases, these people are just happy that anybody cared to listen and listen to them and talk to them about their issues. And I'm not saying it's always going to be easy, you know, and I would start small. You know, you you have a very good voice when you're being, um, you know, passionate. You should consider maybe running for mayor. Um, Are you involved with the Black Lives Matter? I'm I'm running for mayor. (laughs) Oh, well, there you go. I'm sorry I didn't hear that part. Are you involved with the Black oh, Lives okay. Matter movement at all? Um, I, I'm not, but I'm in full solidarity with, with, with what they do. You know, Well, I want to talk to somebody involved with that, and the reason why is that something else you should consider is that if you're concerned about policing in your area, the sheriff is an elected position, and it has an enormous amount of power, and nobody pays any attention to sheriff elections. You know, if you're concerned about law enforcement in your community, participate in the process. Find a police officer or somebody qualified who is, you know, sympathetic. And there are police officers who are sympathetic to the Black Lives Matter idea, you know, and get involved. Get them elected. You could actually change something seriously. It, the sheriff elections are literally just checkboxes. Nobody even usually even knows who they are. You could have an enormous mm-hmm. impact on, you know, policing in your area by participating in that process. There is an elected official in that process for a very good reason, you know, just something to consider. Yeah. So, um, caller, yeah. do you have a, a website that anybody can check out for your, uh, campaign for mayor? Yeah, it's, it's very generic right now, but just, they can go to ericpowery.com and stuff. And, and, um, you know, um, they can also subscribe to my YouTube channel. I, I know I need to you know post more content, but, um, you know, it's like definitely, and, and, and my numbers are up there. People can call me, email me anytime, you know, they could send me snail mail. They can come to my house, I mean, and talk to me. Like, you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm very accessible because I'm not trying to grant. I'm a person of the people, man. I'm a regular dude. I talk to the drug dealers in the hood. I mean, I talk to these people. Like, I'm not like these other candidates. I take public transportation, Amtrak, Mark, Baltimore, Link. I mean, you know, all these other candidates talking about what they're going to do for public transportation. Dude, you never even rode the bus, okay? Like, like I'm, you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm, I'm really out there. I'm really out there amongst the people. You know, we have a problem with squeegee kids, right? You know, they're despair. You know, they don't, they don't, they don't, 
know how to fill out applications there, or they don't feel like it. So they're out there maybe making $10, $20 a day. Look, I tell these guys, man, I, I talk to them in the street. I don't roll down my window. I'm out there walking telling them, look, dude, look, there's no future in that. If you squeegee in for 20 years, you're still a squeegee kid. You, you have no, you, you, you're not building your Social Security. You're not building any investment nest egg. You're not building any, you have no chance to have a wife and kids and a real future and, and to have dignity. I said, look, you can squeegee cars till you, your wrists fall off. But you know what? You're going to pump gas, and I'm going to pay you $20 an hour. And I ain't going to lie. I stole that idea from Christine Whitman. I jacked it from her. Because, because what she did was, look, I'm just saying, she said, you know what? How can we put to work people not to work, not now, but right now? Oh, shucks. Full-service gas stations. You could be trained in 20 minutes. It's no skill. It takes no ambition. So that's, you know what I'm saying, that's one of I mean, I have so many platforms and just stuff I want to do, but, you know, that's, that's one of them because that's a big thing because the squeegee kids harass people at Martin Luther King Boulevard and wherever and all these other places, you know, and, and, and stuff and even get mad at people if they don't get a dollar or five, you know, a couple dollars from people and, and people did not ask you know, for their permission to, you know, not give them consent to squeegee their window. So, you know, it, 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 we have a lot of problems, man, but, but you know, there's hope because they are, you know, they let the schools fail. They let all the prices bottom out. They let it be open air drug market. They let, you know, they, 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 they redlined it and divested the neighborhood. And now all these Italians from New York are coming down with these big construction companies and setting up residency, and they're fighting with the local contractors, and they're, and they're building 200-unit apartment buildings and renaming neighborhoods. And I've seen this playbook before because that's what happened in Brooklyn. And everything became such and such heights and this, that, and the third, and then the rent went up five for hundred. 500, you know, percent. Or, I mean, it's been bad. Okay, like for example, I had a friend who'd been living in Brooklyn all his life, couldn't even find a house with his wife. She's a correction officer. He got a good job with Sony Pictures. He had to move out to Long Island to to finally afford a house, and that's what's happening. Now, the, the cities, the reverse migration, migration has already begun. The cities are the economic center. That's where all the high prices are. Manhattan, the Bronx, Brooklyn. Because these millennial and generation Zers, they're not my grandparents' generation. My father tra- commuted one and a half hours to work from Ma- Massapequa, Long Island, to the Bronx, to the South Bronx. No, these people ain't doing that no more. They're hopping on a train for two seventy-five, and my father paid eight dollars in tolls a day going over the Throgsnecks Bridge. These kids are like, look, I could pay two seventy-five to get to work in thirty minutes or twenty minutes. Okay, these millennials and Generation Zers are practical. They just want to make a lot of money, work twelve, fourteen hours a day, get promoted, and they're looking. They change jobs like they change clothes. They're looking for the next opportunity, whether it's L.A., whether it's London, whether you, wherever it is. You know what I'm saying? So, and, and they want to have flexibility. They don't want to be anchored to a mortgage. So I'm saying all to say renting is what it's all about, and that's why these contractors, Irish and Italian ones from New York and New Jersey, I've read the tea leaves, and that's what they're doing. They're building, they're buying up huge swaths of land at bargain basement prices and building and renaming neighborhoods. And I, I tell people, I tell indigenous Baltimoreans, okay, the, a.k.a. black, they're not building these for you, bro. They're building these for who's coming. Okay, that's who they're building it for. So you know, it, it's it's what's happening. So yeah. let me um let me take a moment because uh you know you have a lot of great stuff and I almost feel like you're rushing. Um, 
I'm willing to help any Green Party candidate or I mean, honestly, I'll bring any third party candidate on. But, you know, why don't you get in touch with me? Uh, There are links where you can find me on Facebook. I'm very reliable there. And let's just have an episode where I'm talking to you about your candidacy so that you can get all of these out, you know, without any kind of need to rush. The entire episode can be about what you're doing, because I I really like listening to you. um, But I want to be able to give you an opportunity to have an episode of your own. Would you be interested in that? Oh, absolutely. All right. It's been great talking to you. Do me a favor, okay? In the description of this episode, you will find links to my Facebook discussion groups. Go there okay. and, um, you know, get in touch with me, and I'll bring you on, okay? Yeah, absolutely. That'd, that'd be great. That'd be great. All right. That'd be great. Did you have Thank any you, parting Thank, words for our, for our caller here, Kate? Uh, I mean, we're actually in Green Organizers together, so I talk to Eric all the time. Um, okay. But I appreciate you calling in, uh, and we're gonna keep, we're gonna be promoting his um, campaign coming forward. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. Excellent. Appreciate it. All right, Eric. Yeah. It was really good to meet you, and I'm I'm very sincere. Please reach out to me on Facebook, and let's get you on the air. Okay. Thank you for coming to V Radio. Thank you. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me, man. No problem. Bye, Eric. All right. Peace. That guy was extremely passionate. <laughs> I really oh, like yeah. him. Oh, yeah. I think maybe he should start a podcast. Like, why not? Well, yeah, yeah. And that's the other thing. If anybody wants to learn how to do that, I'd be willing to help people. It's not that expensive. It's not that hard. So, um, yeah. you know, just something to look at. If you guys are interested in starting podcasts, you know, don't hesitate. But I will bring on people on the radio. I'm, I, for a while there, I was doing a show for every single day. I just had to take a break because I was getting burned out. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm back to it now, and with the pandemic, I'm home most of the time. So, you know, if you guys are interested in coming on, please let me know. So, you know, Kate, he, he pointed out a lot of issues that I think are extremely valid also when it comes to people not really understanding what it's like to grow up in those neighborhoods and what their situations are like. You know, that's one of the things for me, you know, it's kind of, I have kind of a unique experience because I lived in uh, the country for a good portion of my childhood. And then I lived in the ghetto. I mean, the, just flat out the ghetto of Pontiac, Michigan for actually the majority of my childhood. So it definitely changed my perspective. And I have to say, it's one of the things that always kind of makes me laugh when there are people who probably have never been in a situation where they've ever lived in a neighborhood with, you know, bad police response time. You know, they've never lived in a neighborhood where, you know, they couldn't walk down the street because they might be worried about getting mugged. Like they don't even understand what that's yeah. like. And so. And they're re- representing those areas. Right. Exactly. They're representing yeah. those areas. They don't know those areas, you know, or even just they're lecturing us, you know, and that goes from the left and the right. I've, I've talked to a lot of people on the left. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's like, you've never been to these neighborhoods. You don't, you don't, you don't know what this lifestyle is like. You know, um, yeah, and I and I think that's one of the the good things about promoting, you know, increased democracy in our country and and parties like the Green Party, where, you know, we can we are not going to say you can't run because you're from so and so neighborhood. I mean, I don't think the Democratic Party would ever flat out say that, but you know, there are so many systems at play to prevent somebody who might not be, you know, this plastic candidate that never says anything controversial um you know i think that if people want actual representation in politics you can't rely on you know parties that will primary you into the ground you know 
No, absolutely. And that's why I brought up that sheriff election. It really wouldn't take much to seriously sway an election for sheriff because they are such an under the radar area. Um, you know, I and if there are any police officers listening to this broadcast who are, you know, interested in Green Party ideas or hell, even libertarian ideas, you know, consider getting involved, reaching out to your third parties and getting the backup to do this. There are a lot of other positions that can have serious impact, um, you know, overall that are that are easier than, say, trying to run for president. So, you know, yeah. something to think and, about. And think, um, go ahead. I think it's really um, vital that, you know we talk about this more and you know one of the huge reasons why green party runs for president every year and i hear this is a critique of the party you know why don't you spend more time on local elections and um, it's you know they do spend time on local elections when people offer to be candidates we do everything we can to support them um you know you can't force people to run for office if we have larger numbers you know it will be easier to elect people to local office um but you know, the reason why we have presidential candidates every four years is because it allows for ballot access for the next four years. You know, so it's not just like, oh, well, the Greens just have a huge ego and they just want, you know, people to talk about them. And, you know, they're not actually working on anything. Why are all their researchers going to a presidential campaign? It's not mostly towards the campaign. It's mostly towards ballot access efforts. Because you've got people like, you know, the DNC suing in different states to get us removed from the ballot. I mean, you think about all the electioneering they do with their own primary and taking, you know, people like Bernie Sanders off the ballot. I mean, they're doing it to the Green Party as well. But the, the benefit of going with the Green Party is that you don't have to worry about that happening to you twice. You know, once you make it through the primary, I mean, I got that reversed making it through the primary process is so much easier because, you know, everybody running on a Green Party ticket, you know, has a, you know, fairly similar platform. You know, there are major differences, there are ideological differences within the party, but, you know, the structure is set up to where somebody who has corporate donations is literally kicked out of the party. You know, you can't, you are not allowed to run as a Green if you take PAC money, if you take corporate money, if you take any sort of dark money. Um, you get kicked out. Uh, so, you know, and, and that reminds me of that episode. Do you, do you ever watch um, Last Week Tonight? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very funny guy. Yeah, they did one very, on the, on the sheriff. And I thought that was very, um, I mean, it was funny, but it's also like, oh, my goodness. I don't see people running for sheriff in my town because I live in Southern California right now. Um, I don't see those incredible ads, but that's happening in our country, you know? Sure. Very strange. And it, yeah. Um, go ahead. Oh, no, no, you're fine. Um, we actually have two more callers who just uh, came into the queue. Oh, cool. um, let me go ahead and pull on. Um, so, again, caller, please be aware. Uh, obviously, I want you to express yourself. Just uh, be selective about how you do it, um, you know, so as to not offend anybody as far as like, you know, people might have kids listening. Um, so, Caller at the 708 area code, you are on the air. Caller at 708. Are you there, 708? Call dropped. All right, then. Caller at 319, you're on the air. Um, hi. I'm, I'm in Old Wine, Iowa, 
And I've been living out here um, only for uh, five years. Before this, I left. I lived in uh, the suburbs. It was a 708 area code. And uh, uh, the uh, <clears throat> what I've noticed that I, I haven't seen much on the news is that uh, Warren Buffett and a few other very wealthy people like him have been buying all of the rental properties, not just not just five or, or six unit buildings, but individual houses for rent and uh, just totally capturing the market in small towns all, all over the, the western half of the Midwest. And uh, uh, lately I've been seeing that there, uh, with the virus, a lot of New Yorkers are like, as soon as the uh, shelter in place is over, they're leaving. And I believe that he's been getting ready for this for a long time. Not specifically that he had knowledge that this one was going to happen, but he probably was guessing that something like this would happen. And if there's a mass migration, the rental prices out here are ready for them. Because uh, the market, like I said, is extremely captured. I was just shocked at the number of people who are, are paying their rent to uh, uh, Warren Buffett's companies. Oh, wow. Yeah. And and what, you said you're from Iowa? Yeah, yeah, I'm from Iowa. Uh, in the past few years, yeah. I tried to do a uh, research on how many properties that, that Buffett uh, had purchased. And when I checked the data, the data is so messed up that it's not possible. Uh, it's actually showing that he owns more rental properties than exist in the state. And that just can't be. So uh, basically every state, the the data is completely messed up. So I was trying to see how many properties has he, has he uh, let go in like um, specifically I was targeting Miami, uh, Richmond, Virginia, uh, New York city, Boston, all of, all of the heavily populated seacoast areas on the, on the, on the East coast. And my guess was 90 million people, if, even if this uh, hadn't occurred, 90 million people might need to move from the East Coast to the central of the, the center of the United States. Um, the, all of the rest of the oh, decent. Wow. Yeah, if you, if you were to plot a line 200 miles inland from the ocean, because as mm-hmm. the ocean ri- rises one foot, uh, it doesn't make one foot unlivable. Uh, so if the ground level is has a one degree slope, uh, one foot of rise is many many feet of of saturation back into the soil, and then what yeah. happens is it's not just the surface; it's the disease that happens because that area has been moistened. It is the number of bodies and the number of areas that that had uncontrolled toxins in them suddenly get transported in and around um, and swampy areas become bug infested and uh, disease mm-hmm. vectors in themselves. So, you know, what, with the uh, not having a, an environmentally conscious person in Florida government, uh, we've probably lost Florida. Oh yeah. Uh, we yeah. might not have as long a time as we think we have for the Southern half of Florida to be gone. And what, what happens along with that is a possible financial collapse. 
because there's a lot of wealth that is in southern Florida. A lot of people put all of their money into moving to Florida and having enough money to live and stay in Florida. Yeah. Uh, once anything happens to the land, you know, the, the, the first few people that leave Florida will be financially okay. But the people that leave behind them won't be able to sell their house, won't have any money to relocate. They'll basically be climate refugees. Even if they have millions of dollars, they're going to be penniless when they leave Florida. And uh, same as with New York City. Uh, a lot of people, I was shocked at how much just an apartment to rent is in New York. To If you have a co-op, it's even even beyond what, well, like somebody living in Iowa. If, if I look at a rental, uh, an apartment the size of the house I have, uh, you know, it would be millions of dollars in, in New York City. Uh, and here, uh, I, two, two years ago, I could have got a house like mine for $25,000. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the prices are already shooting up in the Midwest just from from Buffett buying uh, other uh, other things. And uh, um, we don't have the drop job structure. We don't have the other infrastructures that you need. Like if our town size were to double, we would not have the sewage capacity. Mm-hmm. If uh, uh, the people that are most likely to move Iowa first are the people that could work from internet. Some of our towns mm-hmm. have really decent internet. So the prices to live in those towns would really go through the roof. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, people that are living there would be forced to basically move, not being able to afford the change in their, their house tax. That's incredible. You know, this is interesting. It makes me wonder what he's up to. Um, there's another uh group that is buying up houses dramatically into the Detroit area and it's China. Like, I don't know what they're doing, but they're buying up all these properties. Um, If you've ever been to Detroit recently, I mean, they use it as a set for post-apocalyptic circumstances because it literally just looks like that, but they're just buying up all these properties and just leaving them there. Um, China Mm -hmm. actually was trying to open up locally to me here in uh, Michigan in our little, we have basically uh, in the area that I live in is Dundee, and there's a lot of little towns, um, little farm towns in this area, and they wanted to buy this huge plot of land in one of those little farm towns and put in a community, um, like prime. It was a Chinese company, I guess they were kind of creating a, a Chinese gated community. I, I don't think they would have told anybody they couldn't live there, but it was very clear that that's what their intention was was to create, you know, something for the Chinese people. And there's an enormous number of Chinese people in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, who go to college there, I run into them all the time. And I'm not against Chinese people, but it was a little odd to me that they're buying all of this property in the United States. And, and like, what's their intentions? You know, there's really no way to know. That's happening. Yeah, I mean, it's the same the thing. The Chinese in, are buying up LA. stuff in Iowa too. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes. Uh, they're also buying yeah. a lot of the farms here. If a, um, many of the farmers cannot, cannot compete with the Chinese. They're, they're, they're uh, they come in, They'll buy a farm where somebody's retiring. Um, the, the kids often don't want to live in a remote Iowa community. So they'll come in, they'll buy that, uh, and then they'll put in uh, um, several of the farms will be growing a monocrop like, uh, like corn just to feed pigs. And they'll put in a huge pig, pig uh, outlet center. 
and sometimes pigs die and whatever. So they have other farms around that big operation that they pay farmers to grow backup pigs. And uh, uh, so you'll find that many of the farms, if they have place, the Chinese are actually renting from people who haven't sold their farm yet. They're renting the capacity for all their pigs. So like the, if a farmer can grow a thousand pigs, they'll put a thousand pigs in that guy's farm. Uh, and, and then and that farmer. Clear, it's, it's, um, if, if you don't mind really quick, to be clear, it's not like individual people from China who are say in the middle class. It's people who are multimillionaires, billionaires who are wanting to hide their wealth from their country so that, you know, they can't be taxed fairly. It's, you know, it's not like mom and pop shops are taking over, you know, any of our cities. That's, it's like people who have enormous power in their own country. It's the same thing as a Warren Buffett over here going to China and buying up all their real estate. That's correct, but the Chinese cannot, are not taxed here either. So what they mm-hmm. do is they work it so that a certain portion of what they need to operate, whether it's some given material or whatever, is purchased from China to make up for the cost of the uh, of the material that that cost the money might not actually go all the way back to China it might bounce to a few other different com- countries but what happens is here in the United States where it's, we're in the tax zone it comes out that they took uh, you know they made a one or a two dollar profit rather than the enormous profit they made because one of their supplies was so expensive but it just uh, they're just buying that supply from another one of their operations overseas. Interesting. I think it's yeah, really interesting that we have no protection from people coming in and buying massive sums of property. I know that in in uh, Mexico, for example, my in-laws are from Mexico, and, and um, my fiancé's um, grandfather owned a house down there. His mother now owns it and wants to have you know him inherit the house. They have protections to where people who are not Mexican city, uh, citizens to they can't they can't buy property there and that means that say an american can't go in and you know buy up all the property and you know rent it out at double the the fair rate um so i'm wondering you know and i know why we don't have those protections here but i'm wondering if we're going to start seeing people ask for those kind of protections well the the farmers here are crying for it but both of the main parties are basically squelching it I, I I was at a uh, a uh, town hall with uh, Senator Grassley, and most of the people screaming were not Democrats; they were Republicans uh, at, at the policies and whatever uh, the number of of uh, farms that were just being squeezed out of existence. And these these are farms that uh, had been in the families for generations. Yeah, and uh, small just... farms, and there and there are no protections to keep small farms around in, in most states. You know, we have farming here. It's just becoming larger and larger companies owning, you know, enormous plots of land. Is it the same in Iowa? Yeah, it's the same. When I was a child, a 40-acre farm was a, a, a moderate farm. A 150-acre farm was a, a, a decent farm. Uh, now the mm-hmm. typical farm is around 3,000 acres. Uh, oh, my goodness. Uh, and uh, they have to buy expensive combines. A combine might only last one or two seasons, cost over one hundred and thirty or one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and just they have to do. There's only a few days you can plant. There's usually only a few days you can harvest. 
because the the, yeah. the plant, the corn and the soybean, have to dry on the plant, and if if you pick them early, uh, then they have too much moisture and they'll rot. So the companies mm-hmm. that buy the soybeans have to dry them, and it costs a lot of uh, fuel. It costs electricity or or, or fuel to actually uh, yeah. heat up the uh, the stuff to dry them. And if they're too too dry, they'll rot as well. So um, mm-hmm. they have this thing where they they get very short notice. So every day they'll go out and test to see what their what their moisture level is in their crop. And it basically within hours they have to start, and they they might have to have their entire harvest done in 48 hours. And what it does yeah. to their equipment is just totally blast it off. So most of their profit goes up into buying the new equipment for the next year. And our um, our farm our farm machinery equipment business that used to mm-hmm. really fund Iowa. Um, uh, somebody who wanted to run for Senate when her husband got out of president and became basically a representative for India, and uh, uh, she got all kinds of deals for Indian uh, tractor companies to move here and uh, take the work away from America, and uh, to the point where basically they were calling her India's uh, senator. And uh, so it used to be our farmers could take part-time jobs working at John Deere, and now they can't because John Deere is going up against all of these Indian companies that do all the work overseas and basically uh, finish the assembly here in the United States and call it an American tractor. Yeah. And let me, uh, uh, I just want to muscle my way in here real quick um, just to make sure you come back to the topic. Although all of this is excellent and I'm glad that you called in. Um, Have you joined the green party in Iowa? Yeah. Excellent. Well, excellent. I've, I've uh, registered as a green. I'm still trying to mm-hmm. figure out how to join the Green Party in Iowa. Oh yeah, yeah. Can if you actually, <laughs> I believe my email's in the description. Uh, we're actually putting together a mass contact sheet. So I know it's a little difficult to get in contact with your local Green Party because it is decentralized. So if you shoot me an email, I will respond. Um, just include your state and your county. Okay, because uh, the uh, Iowa. Uh, Facebook and uh, the other uh, website have information mm-hmm. as much as four years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So we can um, – I'll try and make some calls if you're having trouble with the links that are already there um, on your state party website. So um, mm-hmm. I'll try and, and, and look around for you if you send me an email. I, I've been and, um, active. If it's not active yeah, also, ahead. I mean, you sound like somebody who should be – you know, stepping up and helping and, you know, and if there isn't anybody running it, then, then run it, man. It sounds to me like you have a really good grasp of what's going on locally and the party needs people like you. I, I was active in the democratic party uh, and mm-hmm. just, nobody's perfect. I actually be- became active <laughs> because of the way Bernie was treated in the, uh, the 2016. Um, yeah. And in December, I showed up. I was the only person that showed up at the uh, 2016 uh, um, uh, first meeting they had after. <laughs> totally blasted them that that you know after the uh, what happened that nobody was willing to show up to to talk about it. Yeah. And uh, after that we had uh, like 60 people show up at the next meeting, uh, and uh, uh, but basically it dwindled over time. And now that we're seeing, mm-hmm. um, you know, firsthand the, the rigging that the rest of the country mm-hmm. isn't reporting about all the rigging that happened in Iowa. And uh, 
many people don't realize that uh, in the first stage, they tried to talk as many of the uh, uh, younger generation into voting by phone as possible. And they put a quietly, they put a clause in there that if you'd, if you'd voted online or by phone, that there was a cap of 10%, no more than 10% of the votes could be counted. So basically if oh, they wow. had everybody under 40 vote on the internet or phone, and you know, they would <laughs> sure that uh, uh, they go to the nursing homes. Uh, basically uh, uh, they would target, um, uh, you know, people that are barely cognizant to sign that they vote for a person. So they had a guaranteed mm-hmm. voter base of the, of the older people. And yeah. um, basically uh, the more older people they got, the more people they could cut off from, from voting as the younger group. And we got that shot down and it was just every time we would get another, another just blatant rigging attempt uh, this this cycle, they would throw in another yeah. one. And that last one that they did, uh, we didn't even know about it until days before election with the state equivalent del- delegates where uh, counties that are not just counties, precincts that previously were won by Hillary got a mm-hmm. higher number of delegates than precincts that didn't. Wow. Is that how they're – because I know that certain states, they will have a – um, 40% of their voters voting for, say, Bernie, and then somehow, you know, he will get a less, you know, he'll get less percent of, of delegates, even though proportionately he's, you know, just behind yeah. half. They'll say, give Biden 50 delegates while Bernie gets 15. So it's, you know, primary gerrymandering. Yeah, that's basically it. Uh, Bernie did fairly lose this one. But other mm-hmm. other ones he lost, he ended up getting less delegates than, or other ones he won, he ended up getting less delegates than uh, uh, yeah. Biden and Buttigieg. I and thought yeah. I remembered uh, Bernie said that he actually won the popular vote and then somehow didn't end up with the delegates. Is that is that not correct or that? And this is why. Oh, oh, oh okay. okay. Now it makes more so he, sense. I, he go barely ahead. lost because of the gerrymandering type thing that they were doing. <laughs> barely yeah. lost because of gerrymandering. Right. No, I guess that, well, you know, that's one of the things that I talked to Clint Curtis about is that if you can gerrymander it, you know, everybody can participate in the process and you're still going to get the outcome that you want as the gerrymanderer. You know, for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. And the proper term in this case is vote waiting. Vote waiting. Right. Okay. Thank you for that. Oh, I'm glad uh, to hear so, that. Um, super undemocratic. That, so I'm wondering so the, about your personal political climate in Iowa. Do you have any representatives that are talking about the issues that small farms are facing right now? Yes. Yeah. Um, um, there is Kimberly Graham uh, running mm-hmm. for Senate against Joni Ernst. Uh, and the party is pushing for, uh, instead of her, because she's for M for all, uh, they're pushing mm-hmm. a former large insurance company executive billionaire uh, to run against her. And he says he's for, for, for M for all, but being that his fortunes are tied to an insurance company, I really doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> That's and, really uh, incredible. And are voters in uh, your state talking about that? Do people you talk to know that this is going on? Many of our voters uh, in in the state right now basically listen to uh, either Fox or Rachel Maddow. 
And oh, wow. uh, that's a big problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I still say, you know, that uh, I, I do believe that the Russians were involved with rigging. And no matter how hard they tried uh, to help Hillary, she still lost to Trump. You know, it's interesting. Uh, Clint Curtis, my uh, the guy that I had on a couple times um, recently, he's a candidate, actually a progressive candidate for candidate uh, for Congress in the sixth district in Florida, and he was a whistleblower on the election rigging system at the voting machines. Uh, members of the Republican Party actually uh, approached his software company and asked them to write software specifically to rig voting machines, and then they asked for software to assist in the gerrymandering process. Um, for those of you who are listening to this broadcast, you should check out the two broadcasts I did with Clint. Um, they were they were fractured because uh, one of them was interrupted by uh, Comcast internet outage. There was only so much I could do about that. But both of those broadcasts can be found in our archives. So you know, please you know give a listen to Clint. He's an excellent um, advisor on this issue. Some of you may remember. Uh, I remember seeing it in 2008 that people were circulating a video of a gentleman testifying before Congress. And that was Clint Curtis, um, and he was testifying on the, the the fact these voting machines are basically completely unreliable, um, in that it's just so easy to you know to program them. He pointed out it took very few lines of code to set a voting machine to doing whatever you wanted to do. Um, there are also really good documentaries on this topic of hacking democracy. It's pretty old, but you know everything that's in it is still valid. So on the issue of elections, you know, definitely look at this. And, you know, when it coming, bringing it back to, you know, your membership of the Green Party, you know, and this and what that has to do with this particular episode is that, you know, something that we need to be looking at is that Bernie supporters know how to organize. They know how to motivate people. Now, mind you, we mm-hmm. are kind of unfortunately in a rough situation with this COVID-19. But, you know, you know, if you could imagine what it would be like if we could get these rallies that we would get for Bernie you know, for Green Party candidates and, and really start yeah. to change the paradigm of the way that people look at third party candidates, because whether we like it or not, mm-hmm. this is something that I frequently have to explain to people who haven't been involved in politics, is that politics is not one on one psychology most of the time. It's sociology. And there's a reason why that's a different science. There's a reason why public relations is a a thing that you can get paid to do. And it's because there's a method to it. You know, I mean, I would avoid that by going door to door when I was a candidate and just make it down to the psychological level. And that happens, you know, that can be done, but we have to remember that we're trying to win over large groups of people. And in many cases, the the first one you get is, well, you don't have any chance of winning, so I'm not going to vote for you. People don't recognize the crazy dichotomy that they're putting themselves in that situation, which is to suggest that they should instead vote for somebody who doesn't in any way represent them because then they might win, putting quotes in the air, yeah. win. You know, yeah. what are you winning if you elected somebody who doesn't have anything in common with you? And that's something that Jesse Ventura said on his Twitter when he was hinting at looking at the Green Party was he's like, you know, you guys keep electing people who don't represent you. I mean, why would you ever do that? You know, um, and it, it's the same thing. Uh, you know, when it comes to the, you know, the other part of it, it's just if they see other people doing this thing, then that affects somebody. Because whether we like it or not, we are still a, an animal species at heart. And there are herd slash tribalistic instincts that will make people feel like uh, an apprehension or an anxiety for going against the grain. And that's big. it comes from our, you know, essentially what I call it pack mentality, pack politics. 
because even the primates that are closely related to us still practice these kinds of politics within their own groups. And what it amounts to is, is that you're afraid of going against the grain because your body is essentially wired to be afraid of that. Because if we were living in a primitive time, you know, if you get excluded from your pack, that's a good way to die. Like it's a real threat yeah. to you. And that's essentially what but plays at the heart of this. And it's not rational. That's not the way it should be. But we have to be aware that these things are things that other people who understand how to manipulate crowds will use against you. Go ahead, Kate. Yeah. But, but um, I think to that point, um, you know, we're the point of the Green Party is not just to be a rebel party, you know, it's, it's to create a community that is focused on issues that affect people and workers and, and not corporations. I think the more people that join, the more brave it will make other people feel. And I think the way that we, you know, get people to be our allies is by listening and being kind and, and, and talking about the issues that matter to them. And real quick, um, just to jump back, those crops that you were talking about, soybeans, that kind of thing, are all, um, they're all feed crops, correct, for livestock? Okay. Um, a lot of people know that Iowa grows a lot of corn. Uh, we, we're mm-hmm. about 50% corn, 50% um, uh, soybean. Of the corn yeah. crop, only one-third of it is, is uh, actually um, destined for human consumption. One-third of it mm-hmm. goes to seeds. One-third of it goes to uh, feed. Uh, oh, thank you. But there was a, a commentator on, on Twitter that pointed that out, that it's not just, um, you know, bread basket kind of crop. Well, what um, happens is yeah. um, for, for hybrid corn, it takes two years. The oh. first year... Uh, the farmers grow what are what is called parent corn, uh, and it will have two different sizes of DNA, uh, the, and then so they will take uh, the parent crops to make a seed for next year, uh, and they make that seed in the second year. When they grow that seed, they sell it for growing the crop in the third year. So. Um, there is a huge pipeline uh, of what it takes to, to grow corn to get that, that third for the – so it's that one-third that's used for seed corn. It's kind of hard to say that it's feed corn for going to uh, feed lots, but mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of going toward humans, but it kind of isn't. <laughs> so it's, mm-hmm. it's more proper to say a third goes to humans, a, a third goes to feed, and a third goes to seed. Uh, okay. And the same is with, with soybeans is basically is true as well. But the animals eat less soy. Mm-hmm. Thank you for explaining that because you know, I'm not a, a farmer. I mean, I have family who, who are, but they grow completely different crops. So I appreciate you pointing that out. Um, I think a lot of well, us are kind of ignorant of what goes on. Well, so I want to I want to interject here just because um, we we need to move on. I really appreciate you calling in and I I hope that you'll consider following the show. And I I hope that you also, you know, I hope to be reading about what you're doing down in Iowa. And I'm going to take a a moment of personal privilege to say that my children are wrestlers. and You guys have got a lot of tough wrestlers down in Iowa. um, And we're looking forward to wrestling, looking forward to wrestling against them as my son moves on to national level tournaments. My daughter's wrestled some some girls from Iowa before. Um, You know, it's it's a tough uh, tradition down there in Iowa. So um, it's good to hear from somebody from down there. Um, I do have a combat sports podcast unrelated to this, you know, so that's one of the one of my passions. 
So thank you for calling in. No, thank you for letting me talk. Thanks. Bye. Thank you so much. So um, there's an interesting question here in the Twitter feed uh, regarding Governor Ventura. Now, I do want to say again that this specific episode is more about just Green Party in general, um, not about specific candidates. And what I'm the reason that I'm bringing that up is only because of the fact that, you know, I take my journalistic integrity very seriously, which is why I also want to say to people that. Um, I'm going to continue the third party candidate series, even if I do uh, pick a candidate that I like more than others, that it is my absolute intention to be understood. If you come on my show as a candidate that maybe is not the one that I'm supporting. I mean, back in 2008, I had the Socialist Party candidate on my show. And at the time, I wasn't very left. You know, you will still get your time. You will get fair opportunities to discuss everything. Um, this specific episode, however, is not geared towards, you know, any particular candidate, but I do want to encourage the fact that you people are taking the time to ask these questions. So um, I'm going to try to address them, and obviously I'll, I'll give Kate an opportunity to do so as well. Um, so here we have a question from uh, somebody labeled as Voltaire. Um, can you address concerns of state Green Party leaders who feel like the party should be grassroots and not top-down? Um, I think that at least from my perspective, um, there, there is something to be said for both sides of that issue. Um, you, you have to consider, first of all, being involved in third parties before is that the grassroots level can be a positive force, but without any kind of direction or a common understanding, it can also be a negative force. I also saw this happen in the Occupy movement that, um, when it's grassroots, there are people involved involved in it that might have different motivations than others. Um, there still has to be some kind of means to facilitate teamwork between those groups. When we say grassroots, you know, and, and no top down, this is something that I often deal with when I discuss this issue with anarchists, for example, is that they don't want to see um, any anybody in any level of authority. So unfortunately, what ends up happening is is that we again as humans forget the fact that we are still subject to a lot of sociological pressures. And for example, one of the people that I remember interacting with, she was an anarchist in Occupy and she was completely against any kind of like authority figures. But every time I was in a conversation that she was present in, she was in charge. I mean, was she officially in charge? Absolutely not. But she was still talking more than everybody else. She was still, you know, directing everything effectively and everybody was still deferring to her. Unofficially leading. Right, exactly. And those kinds of personalities, I I run into them all the time. It's not that they don't necessarily don't want anybody in charge. They just don't want anybody in charge over them. Or they want a circumstance where they can just kind of manipulate the situation to be in charge. And, And people who do this, they're not all doing it to be, you know, they don't even necessarily realize they're doing it. But if you want to have real equality, this is something I learned from from Jacques Fresco, uh, the progenitor of the Venus Project. He was another one of my mentors, is that he discussed that you have to create a circumstance where if you want to have real equality, then you have to be aware of these hierarchical structures that develop if you're not, you know, concerned, you know, like if you're not doing everything you can to facilitate to ensure that, you know, for example, somebody's charismatic. Of course, you should listen to somebody's charismatic, but you should be aware that they're charismatic and that as a result, some of the things they're saying to you might have more of an impact on you 
than they would be if you were listening to them being said by somebody who is not charismatic. You have to be aware of the fact that there are a lot of things that people can be led to through charisma that are not necessarily such a good idea. Adolf Hitler being an excellent example of that. And obviously people don't like you to bring that up, but I'm actually kind of against the whole Godwin's law thing because now we've made it to the point where I can't discuss uh, the rise of the Nazi party, even when it is a valid conversation, you know, and we can't, you know, this is a definitely a situation of those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. So be aware of that fact and study the logical fallacies. Those will really, really, really help you. If you're aware of the fact that logical fallacies exist, the straw man, the ad hominem appeal to mockery, you will find yourself to be much less vulnerable to manipulation by those top-down people that you're worried about. If we had a situation where everybody is speaking rationally and avoiding logical fallacy, then we can get rid of a lot of the impact that the the top-down leaders will have on us. But we can't also just go willy-nilly, and especially in a circumstance now, it's only getting worse. The left, in particular at this time, has been becoming very emotional in the way that they approach things. And the problem is, is that if, if you can't convey what you feel in a rational way, you're going to get torn apart by people who can, even if they're wrong. You know, so you take a guy like um, I, I see people, it's almost painful to watch. People tried to debate Ben Shapiro because that guy's got his game together. He knows what he's doing. And if you're going to step up and argue with him, you're not just going to be able to handle you like hand at him like emotional talking points, because unless other people already agreed with you, they're not going to listen to any of that. You've got to be prepared to actually be able to, to debate. Um, there was a, uh, a video after the 2016 election. It was a Jonathan Pye parody video, and it was basically Hillary Clinton or I'm sorry, Donald Trump, how and why. And one of the things that he points out in that video is that the left has lost the art that we can't just debate with people. We can't, you know, confer our ideas in a way that's compelling and and, and rational. And that used to be a weakness that only the right had. We used to be the smart people, and now we're becoming the emotional people. Go ahead, Kate. I think there's a difference between, um, you know, you said the left, and I think it's a really broad term, and I think that applies to the same people who, you know, like I said earlier, we're calling people racist for um, choosing to not support Joe Biden. I think that, you know, when we say the left, we mean, some people mean the left as in the perspective from the GOP. So GOP voters think that Democrats are the left. People who are, you know, for example, a Marxist would not think that, um, you know, centrists are the left. And I've seen some really, you know, rational arguments made by people who, are, you know, they consider themselves leftists. I think that's, you know, a term that people use to describe, you know, everything from a social Democrat to full-blown, like, Trotskyist, you know, and and I see good arguments being made. I just don't think that they get covered. Um, And, you know, I I, I really do um, think that it it has to do with, you know, which things do we cover? Are we going to cover Ben Shapiro getting kicked out of a school as opposed to debating him? Or are we going to cover, you know, the perfectly rational arguments that are being made, you know, uh, on, on, say, for example, leftist media? Um, also, there's, there's a second part to this question um, uh, from Voltaire that I, I think we can Oh, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. Fun. I didn't get to that. Go ahead. Yeah. It says, um, 
The full question is, can you address concerns of state GP leaders who feel the party should be grassroots, not top down? Also, we did that Green part. Party leaders feel that he could just be taking over after people worked so hard for so long to build the national platform. I think that the concern about Jesse Ventura, uh, I think both sides are completely valid. Um, you know, we definitely need, you know, a candidate that could uh, potentially draw voters from other places. I also think that, you know, that they have a primary system for a reason. You know, nobody is going to just say, you know, here, you're magically the nominee. You know, one of the principles of the Green Party is democracy. And I don't think it would be a democratic thing to hand somebody the nomination. Um, I think it is important, though, that we we take advantage of, um, you know, this point right now where people are just talking about Jesse Ventura, and he might even just be a way for people to go look at the platform, because the platform is so good. If he were to be the nominee, I think he would have to adopt a large part of the Green Party platform, or even just the whole platform. Um, you know, his his personal stances have changed over the years, um, you know, and I, I don't think he's as hardcore libertarian as some people believe he is. Um, but, you know, you know, whether or not Jesse Ventura runs is up to Jesse Ventura, but whether or not he is the nominee is up to Green Party voters. If people want to have a say in who the nominee is, I really think they should go out and register Green. I think that would be a good thing for the party. Um, you know, and and I don't think a run by, say, somebody, Jesse Ventura, would ruin all the grassroots work um, that people have been doing for years in the Green Party. I think it would just broaden the base of the party. Um, I don't think we have to compromise our ideals in order to appeal to a broader spectrum of people. You know, we don't have to adopt, you know, ideas that are the antithesis of what the Green Party believes, you know, but I, I really don't think all of his ideas are, are that different from the Green Party, um, if you do some research on what his current stances are. Again, so, you know, our group, um, Green Organizers, doesn't take a stance. You know, people who support Ventura are there, people who support Howie, people who support Dario, um, people who support anybody or don't have a, a preference or welcome. Yeah. So what I would add, okay, and, and again, coming back to what I said about um, why I wasn't talking specifically just about any one candidate today is because I'm trying to create a neutral forum, but I will discuss the issue of famous candidates versus not so famous candidates and their effect on third party politics um, and the issue of like, we, you know, the people who work so hard. Okay, so when we talk about the fact that politics is a long game, one of the major components of this is that you have to recognize you know, what facilitates your goal, you know, being achieved. And, and in some cases, that's going to be a situation where you have to make some compromises. Note I said some. I'm not talking about Joe Biden level compromises. Those are just ridiculous. OK, but, you know, we're at a situation where we have to consider this. You know, it's kind of like, you know, if a tree falls in the forest, you know, and nobody's around to hear it, does it actually make a thud? You know, OK, so if we run a candidate you know, in the forest, but nobody noticed them. Did they actually run? You know, and I and I hate to say some of the things like this, but it, it's important to note that politics is a brutal and ruthless game. 
and that the opposition to what we are doing is all unified. You know, if you want to understand how that works, look very closely at what happened in the Democratic primary, because the establishment, they're all on the same team. They, they get it. They know what they want to do. They know what their goals are. What are they willing to do? You know, and so that meant that somebody, Barack Obama, had to get on the phone with them and convince them, you know, that, hey, this is what we feel is best for the party. Were they right? No, they weren't right. It's not what's best for the party. But that's an example of how powerful it is when you do understand that in some cases, you know, you know, Amy Klauchabar, Pete Buttigieg, they all had to swallow their pride or they weren't going to be able to stop this interloper, who, in my opinion, was the good guy of the situation, you know, from taking over their party and all of their hard work. That's how they look at it. So what you know, yeah. I recognize that it's very important, you know, but, you know, people were talking about vanity candidates or, you know, they're talking about, you know, is it just for somebody's ego you know, and I get all that. And I heard all of that working for Senator Gravel when he went to the Libertarian Party. OK, I, the thing is, is that what ended up happening and I watched it happen is that the, there were people there that were fighting for candidates who did not have any chance whatsoever, you know, of getting anywhere. And, and I get it. We, we emotionally we get attached to certain people. And I totally understand that. But at the end of the day. You know, we have to look at what levels of compromise are still acceptable, you know, when it comes to achieving things on the massive scale, you know, again, a long game. So let me break this down in ways that not everybody is going to be nice to you and not discuss with you blatant, you know, bluntly. But that's the way I do things. If you've ever listened to Senator Mike Gravel talk during the debates, he was ruthless. So and understand that what I'm about to say is going to sound mean, but it's just a reality check. Okay. At this point, we have the right motivations. We are the good guys. But something that I remember my mother taught me a long time ago was that you can be right when somebody's trying to bully you. That doesn't mean you're going to win the fight. That doesn't mean you're going to be able, you know, it's not a movie where the good guy always wins. You know, that, that's just the truth of it. So we have to be willing to do whatever it takes sometimes to move our whole movement forward. So, if we get in a situation, for example, where a candidate like, say, Jesse Ventura, as an example, is promoted to the nomination, and then he draws a bunch of attention to our party, and then those people start looking at our platform, start looking at our ideas, then that in of itself is a victory. So you have to weigh, because as I said you know, earlier to other people you know, in different broadcasts and today, I've seen people get caught up in, in their little battle in the little pond. And they think that their convention in their third party is just this big deal. And it is a big deal to the people within that party. And I'm not saying that it's not as far as something, something you shouldn't be passionate about, but you have to be calculating because our enemies are very calculating. The people who oppose our perspectives are very calculating in what they're doing. And that's what they did to Bernie Sanders on Super Tuesday. We have to be ready to essentially do things that some cases are not going to be what we would like to do. I, I rail on Jimmy Dore all the time for the nasty stuff that he says about progressives like Bernie Sanders and AOC because he doesn't understand this. He wants to live in a universe where you can just get up on the podium and yell and, and cuss and, and then, you know, because that makes you feel good, but it doesn't win elections. It just doesn't yeah, well, most I think of the this, time. This, this is a similar argument than to what I hear from people who were and or are Bernie Sanders supporters about the Democratic Party is that they're looking at appeasing their voter base. And, and who is their base? 
You know, it's not the majority of the country. The majority of the country, um, I believe, we're close to half. I, I, I'm very sketchy on my statistics. Please don't quote me. But, um, you know, there are so many people who don't vote. There are so many people who are independent. And the fact that, um, you know, the Democratic Party primary voters um, refuse to acknowledge that they are a, fact, a factor in the general election is, you know, a huge issue. And whether or not Jesse Ventura is the, the, the answer to that problem within the Green Party, I do think it's worth at least looking at, um, looking at as a possibility, looking at as, you know, maybe a path forward. It doesn't mean that, you know, again, we're going to, you know, coronate anybody. But I think the fact that, you know, people are having that conversation is so important. Um, you know, because it might not be Jesse Ventura this time. It might be a different person with, you know, a different perspective. But I think there is a difference between, you know, calling out somebody rightfully. I think you should always call out, you should always vet your candidate versus, you know, immediately deciding that that person is not good based off of surface knowledge um, without putting in any legwork. You know, and, and I've seen valid critiques of Jesse Ventura based off of his actual record that are like, okay, that makes sense. That is totally like a legit critique. But I think the idea that, oh, you know, he's a Michael, you know, you know, Bloomberg candidate. I don't think that that, you know, comparison is necessarily accurate. Also, no, I wouldn't you know, say so either. Green Michael Party Bloomberg was an smart. obvious hack, whereas Jesse Ventura definitely falls into the, the give a shit category. Um, I don't think Michael Bloomberg yeah, I mean, cares and, about anybody under a certain monetary value. And I think you can debate that even of Jesse Ventura. You know, people, you know, some people will have the perspective that he, even after all the research, that he is out there for himself. And if that is your point of view, I totally hear you. That is totally a valid thing. And I'm, I hope you, you vote in the primaries. Um, I also think that, like, we need to give our members of the party, you know, the chance to think for themselves. You know, before, you know, if we say that this person is 100% not an option ever, um, you know, I think that is doing a disservice to party members who are smart. You know, we, you know, the Green Party attracts people who do their research. And I'm not saying that the general public isn't smart. I'm not saying that. But, you know, the, the Green Party isn't made up of people who watch Maddow and who watch Fox, who are, you know, I believe that they're smart. I just don't believe that they have you know, the right kind of media, um, or I should say propaganda being shoved down their throat. We don't have that problem with the Green Party. So instead of, you know, screaming about how whoever it is is the worst candidate ever, you know, you could be saying the same thing about any one of the candidates. Uh, you know, you can, you can shift that perspective to any one of the candidates. Um, just allow people to do their research, allow people to make up their minds. And, you know, I think people will figure out who is the best candidate for the party. And if they, you know, you know, if their opinion is different than yours, that's okay. It's just an opinion. You know, if we want to succeed as a party and as a movement, we can't, you know, remove people from, from the conversation just because they disagree. And that goes for people who are for or against Jesse Ventura, uh, Dario Hunter, you know, Howie Hawkins, anybody. People are allowed to have different perspectives and, and debate them. And they're not, you know, somebody who's ruining the party. They're, they're well, me, um, participating in, in democracy. 
Sure. Let me let me finish my my statement that I was trying to get at, which, which comes yeah. back to the tough love thing I was saying earlier. Um, we have to determine what will make us feel better in the long run. And my thoughts on the matter more or less come from this. If we can get 5% of the vote, if we can get 15% of the vote, then the future Dario Hunters and Howie Hawkins of the world will have a hell of a bigger platform to be able to do what they're doing. I've had Howie Hawkins on the show. I think he's a solid candidate. I've invited Dario yeah, Hunter. Really I've been cool. having a hard time getting in touch with him, but he, every time I've ever heard the man talk, he sounds like a solid candidate. But there are people that are not even going to listen to them just due to the name recognition issue, and I don't like that. It's not that it's moral. It's not that it's correct. That's the truth. But if we want to win elections, we have to recognize that we need to be able to win people over who are not in our echo chamber. We have to be able to win people over that are outside of our little box. You know, and that's one of the things that I think that has been a problem that people like Jordan Peterson point out correctly about the way things are going in the, on the left side of politics is that we essentially now have sheltered ourselves in our little boxes where we're never challenged. And if you know, somebody's coming to our college campus and we don't agree with them, then rather than putting together a well-thought-out argument to discredit what they're saying, we pull fire alarms and we try to prevent them from being allowed to speak at our campus in the first place. You know, this is not a winning strategy in the long run. It will work within your circle. It will work within your group of friends who already agreed with you anyway. It's not going to work outside of that. You know, and that's why when I've talked to people, because um, one of the things that helps my perspective is that, like, on my own personal Facebook wall, meaning my non-activist one, I created essentially kind of a, uh, a neutral territory of I will let you discuss your politics with me on Facebook as long as you are being respectful. And I won people over to at least be willing to change their attitude about certain things. You know, for example, I have a lot of Trump supporters just because my kids are involved in the sport of wrestling. For whatever reason, there's a lot of mm -hmm. conservatives involved with it. And they're on my wall all the time saying pro-Trump stuff. And they were really anti-Bernie Sanders. And they would comment on everything that I shared. And my progressive friends would try to jump all over them. I'd be like, hold on, hold on, calm down, let me handle this. So was I ever yeah. going to convert those people to Bernie voters in the general? No, I didn't. But I can tell you that an awful lot of them did vote for him in our Michigan open primary and that's something yeah. that I would have never had if I had not taken the time to calmly and politely talk to those people, articulate why I feel the way I do. And again, pardon the profanity, you know, selling to them the idea of the give a shit candidate. Those people will never yeah. agree with Bernie Sanders about Medicare for all, but they do believe that Bernie Sanders cares a lot more about them than Paul Ryan, Ted Cruz, or any of these other, you know, stuffed shirt Republicans. So we're getting down mm -hmm. to the last two minutes of the broadcast. So I just want to emphasize something heavily is that, again, regardless of whatever candidate I end up supporting in this election, if you're coming on this broadcast, you're going to get a fair shake. If I have an episode that's just about a given candidate, then that candidate will be the primary focus of that episode. Um, and, you know, please consider following V Radio. I don't actually really need any financial assistance with V Radio right now. If you want to support me on Patreon, you can. But what is mostly my motive right now is to try to reach out to people and provide them with an alternative media. And that's something I wanted to say earlier was that, you know, go out and support your alternative media, not just me, all of them. Even if you don't necessarily agree with everything they say, you know, the people that I listen to are like the rising show, Crystal Ball, 
Um, I sometimes listen to Jimmy Dore. He's kind of turned me off recently. Uh, Tim Black, he does a great show. You know, support these alternative media people because in some cases, what really motivates them is just that somebody followed their show. Somebody listened, and that really helps them. And it helps you. If you have an alternative media out there that's been supported, that's talking about your talking point issues, that will help change the narrative. So, um, Kate, I want to thank you for coming on V Radio. Um, Again, you can uh, see her. The email for her organization is in the description for the show. And um, you can check her out on Twitter. That's also down in the section. You can find my Twitter, my Facebook group, my Facebook page, you know, and, um, Thanks again, Kate. It was great talking to you. Um, I'd like to call you briefly off the air after we're off the air here in about 10 seconds, if that's okay with you. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Take care. Thank you.